Today I have with me Evan Yu. Uh, he's the creator of UJS. Uh, he uh, has been working on it full time for about three years, and I thought it'd be great to have him on since uh, we tend to, I guess we tend to come up a lot when people are talking about open source. Um, and yeah, it's funny. I had a our, my first time meeting Evan. It was funny because I remember we I went to JSConf last call, and I was like the first pro- conference I've ever been to. And then he like randomly come up to me. I was like. Henry, I was like, what? <laughs> and then he's like, can you fix this like Babel runtime bug with like version six or something? I was like, what are you talking about? Um, I just thought it was funny. That was the first thing that we interacted on. Um, but yeah, I think I also remember going to that one. I think I was still working at Meteor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very few people actually knew about Vue, I think. Some people actually know about it, but um, it was like nowhere. Nowhere as commonly known as today. So, like, I was thinking maybe one day I would do a talk about Vue at a conference like this. That was literally the thought I had when I went to that yeah. conference. Yeah. And a lot of people that I really looked up to. Yeah. And then now you have conferences about Vue all the time. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of crazy, actually. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's kind of interesting to see the growth of a project, not just like, because, you know, yeah, like when open source projects get big a lot of libraries get created or like components, but then it's also like all these other random things. Like there's like a newsletter and a podcast and meetups and conferences and people make video courses. And I think that shows a lot more of like how it's growing more than just the fact that people have more downloads. Right. For me, it kind of, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of it has to do with like the perceived value of the project versus just like the project itself. And I see this with Babel. It's like if if no one's talking about it and everyone's using it, it doesn't really matter to help us like fund it. Yeah, that's true. But then stuff like, oh, like X percent of people on NPM are using this. And it's almost like even if it was wrong or like the 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 way they got that number was wrong, people are still gonna believe that and it actually convinces people to use it. And so it's like I have to go out of my way to like tell people that people are donating or using it. And I think that's kind of weird. Yeah, I think it, it's also one thing I've noticed. Um, the difference between projects like Babel and projects like Vue is um, different types of projects have different sort of, uh, I guess, exposure channels. Because um, frameworks, front end frameworks like Vue, React, Angular, developers tend to interact with um, these APIs on a daily basis. They kind of keep getting reminded that they're using this framework and they have to like look for questions, answers, uh, documentation and all stuff. Like I guess the interacting, the, the, the frequency that they interact with the project is just much higher compared to an, a more infrastructure level project like Babel, where in most projects you set up, maybe the, the project lead set it up once when the when the project was started, and most developers don't even care about it when they use it, right? Un- unless they run into a bug or something, right? So it's like all negative. <laughs> yeah, right. So it, it's a it's a thing I've noticed over the time, and uh, it seems like I guess that's why I I seem to have a relatively easier time uh, just getting people to to donate or just like know about you. Like to be honest, like I didn't really spend so much time going out there telling people about like how much people are using it. 
I guess it's it, I guess it's an advantage of of something being so close to the to the developers on a daily basis. Yeah, and I guess you also have stuff like um the like Chrome extension and like people telling everyone like oh this thing is this website's using Vue. Like no one's ever like oh this website's using Babel. Like no one no one ever say that. That's true. Interesting. Yeah, and, and the percentage is probably much higher, right? Yeah, at this point it's probably like all of them because. Like yeah. it's funny. Like I was looking at, um, like, say Next.js, right, or Nux, or anything. Mm-hmm. Like every website that's using Next.js is technically using Babel. That's true. And so every time, like, Guillermo like tweets it, it's like, oh, okay, I guess another website is using Babel. Right. But like, no one, but no one's doing that, and no, no one's like excited that that's happening. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny, um, right? And also, there's really, um, I guess it's kind of hard to have an accurate statistics about that. Right. right? I mean, technically, we can maybe write write a Chrome extension that checks whether the source code contains some Babel specifics, like protocols or (laughs) helpers. Yeah. But, you know, having people agree to install that would be a really hard thing to do. Actually, that would be interesting because, like, uh, we could figure out if. Well, we would have to ask all the extensions to add that in there, but that would be interesting mm-hmm. to figure that out because it would just be another if check on like some random like artifact that Babel mm-hmm. has, right? Alternatively, you maybe maybe you can work with um, like the, the I think there's a website called Built With, which kind of crawls websites for the technologies they use. If you can maybe get in touch with them and figure out a, a relatively accurate way of determining whether a website uses Babel. <clears throat> They can definitely, you know, leverage their uh, crawlers to just do this, just add Babel into one of the things they collect information about. Yeah, I guess we should, because we mentioned funding, I guess um, one of the questions that I mean, listening to some old podcasts that you've done and I've done, mm-hmm. um, even back from like RFC, like in 2017, I think one of the questions that people have had at the time is like, it should projects fund or should companies and people fund projects or fund the the people directly right and that, yeah. i guess it's similar to the whole like patreon versus open collective and mm-hmm. funny because both babel and view have both of them i think that's a that's a really interesting question to be honest like i don't even have a very good answer because i think it really depends on how the project is is organized like for view the issue is the definition of the view team is is not like a, a commercial entity where um, like the money goes into the entity and then there is a predetermined way of dis- redistributing it among the team, right? Um, for for a team like View, uh, because there is no fixed responsibility, right? Any members, um, a lot of like most of our members are volunteers. They come join the project. They um, sometimes they work on a thing very passionately for a period of time, but we don't we don't say like you have to keep doing it that way, right? If they feel like they have to attend to other things in their life and just uh, want to stop working on view, uh, that's totally fine. We ha- we don't have we don't try to assert any sort of obligations on our team members. It's kind of a double edged sword because right. Um, on the one hand, people can people don't have to always feel the pressure of like I have to like putting this amount of work to be able to you know uh, 
to, to be able to consider the doing valuable contributions to the project because we don't have that kind of requirements. But on the other hand, it also makes it harder for us to gauge like, uh, when it comes to, you know, financial returns, right? Um, because a lot of the work people do, it's really, really hard to quantify. Um, the, I don't, I don't feel it's fair to just count the hours, right? Um, and also like some of the, some of the, some of the stuff people do, it's really hard to quantify, like just, uh, interacting with the community, answering questions. All of these things are helping the project, but like, uh, it's, it's just really hard to figure out a, a proper way to, um, I guess, map these contributions to how much money they should get in return. And also, like, it creates a really, I guess, awkward dynamics when you try to openly talk about it inside the team. Cause, um, if you try to reward some team members for, um, uh, for their work with money, then, um, then, then there comes the question, like, what is the criteria for receiving monetary re- return, uh, for your work on the, on the project? Right. We do have a few members, uh, like Yang, he's, he's doing so much and he's, uh, we, we actually, um, frequently let him expense his work on open collective. But in general, um, we find it pretty hard to have a set rule on like, how do you quantify the amount of work you do uh, in terms of how much money you get? Um, so in the end, a lot of our team members started their own Patreon, which actually uh, some of them are doing pretty well. I think Giam um, uh, has over 1400 a month from his Patreon, plus the, uh, the amount that we regularly expense on Open Collective. Um, Chris also has over 900 per month on Patreon uh, for the work uh, he does on the docs. Um, so in that way, um, I feel like it makes them more motivated in some way. I'm not sure. Like, honestly, I'm not sure if it's the best way. It's just like, we honestly feel it's a hard problem to tackle. So we ended up uh, letting the team members uh do their own patrons. It's a. Uh, I, I think it's highly coupled to how the team is organized. If you, if you sort of run the team as a very, um, you know, disciplined, like entity where like everybody has a fixed responsibility, uh, and everybody has to, you know, do weekly reports, have like lay out their roadmap, the work they plan to do, then it, you know, it makes much more sense to say like. If you do this work, this is the amount of, you know, financial reward you get. But on the other hand, um, being super, super flexible also creates some sort of a difficulty in designing a, a system for di- distributing financial rewards. So it's just a, I guess it's a challenge. We're still figuring it out ourselves. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, I asked this because we have the exact same problem and we're dealing with the same thing. And I, I think, you know, even though it's true, yeah, like open source is so many different things, but I feel like for the kind of open source that we're involved in, like this community type of open source, you know, it's the same thing. Most people don't have a fixed responsibility and people kind of just come in and out and we shouldn't, yeah, like you said, we're not going to force anyone to do anything. And so, um, yeah, what you were saying, like, how, how can you reasonably figure out a way to pay people when like people live in different places? 
people are different stages of life, like um, different kinds of work that you said, like triaging issues versus like features or docs. Um, honestly, yeah, it's literally, <laughs> I don't think it's, it's, I don't think there's a, a way to like fairly do that. And then also it gets into like, well, it's because there might not even be a lot of money in the first place. And then it gets even weirder because then you can't be like, oh, we're just going to pay everyone the same amount. And it's like, well, we're just going to run out. And so I feel like maybe that's why a lot of us have decided it's more like, well, I at least even say it for my case, like I quit to do this full time. So I think no one would be mad of like giving most of the money to the full time people versus just like splitting it up. It almost feels like it's better to use or give them most of the money to the same people versus like spreading out to multiple because that won't be effective, right? Yeah. And also, uh, I guess similar to how startup founders, like, I mean, in practice, startup founders reap the most rewards, uh, but it's it's also because they take the most risk, right? Um, when you have a full-time job to fall back on, uh, you don't, you don't have as strong, you don't have a, as strong uh, a reliance on, the open source work as your income, uh, as your, your, your means of living, right? Um, say when you decided to quit, like, or when I decided to quit, we are, we're taking a really big leap of faith, uh, hoping that this thing would work out. We'd, we'd actually be able to sustain our living, uh, by, by doing this work. So, um, I don't know, like you, you kind of have to, be able to have enough money to actually make a living if you take the risk to do it full time. That's why, like, if someone is actually doing it full time, it makes it much easier to justify, you know, giving them money versus, uh, if you don't have, if you're just uh, doing it on your own side, um, in some way, like, for, for example, I know some people, they actually just do it as a hobby kind of thing, uh, versus, uh, Versus someone who works on it as a means of living, I think that's a different mindset. So their expectation for the financial return is also kind of different. So there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot, just a lot of factors involved here when it comes to what people expect and what they actually get. Yeah. Yeah. I guess honestly, the answer is more that it's just complicated. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, and thinking of that, it's like Logan, um, he's a core maintainer. Um, you know, I was asking him to, if he wanted to do it full time, and he ultimately decided to go back to working. Um, and he he took that job at Mozilla to work on the Firefox Dev Tools. And he said that he would rather, even though he's a core part of the team, he would rather do it as a hobby because he didn't want to deal with that whole what we're dealing with, I guess. Um, and I think it's better for him if that's what he wants. And I think I don't. It's almost like we shouldn't make or make it seem like everyone should do it full-time because it looks like it's amazing, right? Just like convincing everyone to do open source in general. It's like, you should... I think people should know what they're getting into. And I feel like a lot of times we don't really talk about totally. it. Totally, yeah. It's like, I mean, it's like a career choice, right? Like some jobs you would just enjoy. Some some jobs is just not for you. Uh, open source is just definitely not for everyone, right? Yeah, and I would say like not because it's, no one's not technical enough, but the sense that like the people stuff maybe you just don't want to deal with like community. Totally, yeah. The things you have to deal with, um, the I guess the um, the pressure of working for yourself, and also um, whether you in- actually enjoy dealing with it enough to to do it on a daily basis is definitely a big part of it. Um, so I just talked to Michael Rogers on the previous episode, and he actually mentioned how. I was, I was talking about how one thing I see is that 
I don't tend to talk to a lot of different like groups of people that are in open source. So like I'm in my like we're all in this JavaScript bubble, and I like I don't know a lot of people in like Ruby or Python. And he was saying that it seems like, or his observation was that, like in terms of sustainability, even that people follow the leader. And so it was interesting that since you made a Patreon, it, it seems kind of obvious that a lot of other people that want to work on Vue that want to do it full time or part time, they made the Patreon. But then it might not be the case in like other communities. Uh, so I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, I honestly don't know that much outside of the JavaScript world, to be honest. Uh, closest person I know is Taylor, Taylor Otwell. He, he works on Laravel, right? He also runs a full time, but he's, uh, he has a much more commercial oriented mind. So he kind of builds a lot of products around it, uh, and is very, very successful in that aspect. So, um, I don't know. He's just a really, really productive person, I guess. Like, I don't know how he manages a framework at the same time cranks out so many pro- commercial products at the same time. I just don't think I can do that. But if you are as productive as him, uh, it's definitely a cool path to walk on because uh, it's more like it's more like you are working on open source, but you are not completely reliant on it because you have uh, something that actually generates proper commercial income. Right. And I guess for that, you know, uh, that's, that is a good business model in the sense where it's more like open source is your way to reach people and then building something on top. Or, or similarly, I guess like open core and all that. I guess we've chosen this uh, fun. Well, I guess my question is like, where do you see the future of how to grow your own funding or other team in general? Yeah. So for us, um, I think I, so I, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but we currently, I just hired one full-time developer. Uh, he's based in China right now. And um, so he works on our CLI most of the time at the moment. Um, so he's our technically our first full-time member after uh, a side of uh you know, beyond me. So we have, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So technically we have two full-time people working on it now. Um, I do hope we can uh, expand the headcount a bit more in the future, but I also don't want to turn this into a, like a startup where like we have to account for investors, look for growth and all that stuff. Cause we really want to do this more like, um, I guess a lifestyle entrepreneurship type of thing where uh, we want to make sure we enjoy working on this thing. Uh, we make enough money to, to have, you know, to make a living. And um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much like where I see what I would want to move towards. And in order to do that, I think eventually we might have to uh, figure out some sort of way to tie into some commercial offerings, but I'm not entirely sure are we going to approach that? Because uh, I personally am not too fond of something like running a company or having to manage yeah. people, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it's still something we're trying to figure out. I really like, you know, the the status I'm in right now where I can mostly just focus on the project itself and not too much on the uh, commercial side of things. Yeah, I feel like the same way. Like, I don't want to... I don't know. When you raise money for VCs, you're going to have to earn it back. And then totally. the point is, is growth, which is just, I mean, what are you going to spend your money on if you raise that millions of dollars? It's to hire people. And 
the whole point of open source is that you don't have to have that many people working on it and everyone can use it. And so I almost feel like because it's already working so well, it's not like you need to hire, you know, a hundred yeah. people to make it work. It's just going to make it work, yeah. right? I mean, taking investments if it is eventually means there's half. There has to be a business model around what you're working on. And the thing is, not necessarily every open source project has a good business model for it, right? Um, yeah. So, so that's the interesting part, right? Um, it's like open source project, like these projects, you, we've built something people want, right? A lot of people use the things we built. Um, but how does that convert into value and how do you collect that value? Um, so that's the question of like what kind of business, business model you can build around it. But the thing is the way open source works today, right? Uh, how like, Especially for a project like Babel, it's really hard to to envision what kind of business model you can have for it. Like if you build a database, right, it's straightforward. <laughs> if you if you build something you can sell, it's straightforward. But for for projects like Babel, especially for something that people already have kind of taken for granted, it becomes even harder. It's almost like that's not, it's like the fact that it's so successful makes it even harder because they're already using it at the fullest extent. Um, you know, I had ideas on like, well, if you want new features to show up early, you know, whether it's like, I almost feel like, you know, TC39, like they're, the companies on there should be funding the development of new proposals. So like when someone is a champion, they, they propose something to the committee, whether it's stage zero, one or two, mm-hmm. they should pay somebody. It doesn't even have to be us, like the core team. Somebody should be paid mm-hmm. to actually write the code to make it happen, right? Um, and there's so many things related to that. It's like, what if you paid someone to go through the whole process, like the two-year process of getting something into stage four, like making sure that they write the tests. And what if someone, if all these companies are using it, you could write the migration code, like code mods, mm-hmm. and like the documentation and examples. And like, there's so many things. It's like, we're just waiting on some random person to implement it. And like, So in the case of decorators, it's like Niccolo, one of our core members, he just randomly decided to do it. And it's like, are we really going to wait for some person just to do it just because we want decorators, even though everyone wants it? It's like, it seems kind of absurd. Actually, when it comes to that, um, instead of having, you know, thinking in a way where like someone should pay someone to do it, how another way to think about this is some big companies should allocate one of their full-time employees to spend time following this through, right? As part of oh, their yeah, actual sure. job. Uh, which is kind of what happens for a lot of um, like projects like Chromium or something like that, right? It's mm-hmm. it's open source, but you know a lot of Google employees actually work on it full time as part of their job. Um, right. So you know, ideally, if we can have companies that um, spend time, you know, allow maybe one of their employees to allocate part of their time following through a specific proposal as uh, inside the Babel project, right? I think that would be really cool, right? We have people on TC39 championing these uh, proposals, and most of them are also employees of some company. So it kind of makes sense to apply the same kind of model for for Babel, where um, if we want to have a, we have a corresponding proposal in TC39, and we have a corresponding implementation and all the documentation stuff in Babel, so we can have an someone from the same company. Uh, work on the Babel side, 
to ac- to sort of complement the uh, I guess the proposal side in TC39. I think that would be really awesome. Um, I guess we've seen this recently, mm-hmm. um, just like last few months. Uh, Bloomberg has been contributing for all the private nice. method stuff. Um, and some other companies have been stepping up. It's just, it's kind of a slow thing where it's almost like people don't know they can do that. And I almost feel like, like everyone's using it. They know, you know, we're a community driven project, but then people almost feel like scared to ask if they can work on it, which is like, weird. yeah, that's, I guess there, there's two sides of this. There's one side where people feel like maybe someone has already decided to work on this. Like, would it be, like maybe some people just feel out of place to just step up and say, I, I'm going to work on this, right? The other side is uh, inside companies, who are the key persons that we need to, like uh, someone need to be convinced to to say, okay, you are going to spend this time working on this Babel thing. I, I just think like uh, in general, the industry doesn't have a mindset for, for this because this is not a common thing, right? Um, People probably don't even know there's this possibility. If we can somehow, you know, uh, like, like if you, if we just make a case study for it, like Bloomberg, uh, contributed to this, uh, private field thing and it has been working really well for them. You know, they're, they are getting proper recognition. They get to actually get this into production sooner for their needs. Um, mm-hmm. Right, so this would be a really good story, and more companies will follow suit. Like we mentioned all this in our blog post, but maybe we should do a better job of like it's all, like it's only good marketing for them, and in terms of just goodwill in the community, but also literally like getting what they wanted in the first place. And so, um, yeah, how do we? Yeah, what you said, make a story about that, um, and I, I think that's really important. Like I almost feel like that's all like the non-technical stuff that people might not be thinking about. Right? Definitely, yeah. Well, not change gears, but since we were talking about funding still, when people are funding you on Patreon, what do you what do you say that it's for? But what and then what do you think people believe they're funding you for? Is there a difference? Like in reality, uh we have two types of uh donors we have t- uh on Patreon, right? We have companies and we have individuals. Uh I think most of the individuals are really just donating because they use Vue and they think uh, we are doing a decent job and they want to see us keep doing that. Uh, I think mm-hmm. uh, individual donors are mostly out of their mindset. And I think that's, that's really great because it's exactly what they think they're donating for and exactly what we're using it for. Um, where the companies, right? Um, the incentive. And the outcome might be a, there might be a little bit of mismatch, but I think it's still ultimately aligned. So most companies, to be honest, uh, they, they become a sponsor on Patreon because they want to see their logo on a, on our website, right? Right. Um, and, but if you think about it, like the reason they want to see their logos on our website is because we have a lot of traffic. We have a lot of developers visiting our sites. And the reason we have a lot of developers is because we are, uh, working on view, trying to make it better. Right? If if we don't do a good job, we don't have visitors. Then uh, this sort of sponsor value kind of evaporates. So it's if you think about it, it's almost like you know athletes or sports teams, right? They when they play games, they don't actually create direct value for anyone. But you know because so many fans 
are passionate about it. So many fans are watching the games. You know, these companies they they're willing to sponsor these athletes just to get their mm. brands out there. Um, right. So so I think um, this has you know this has been proven to be a valid model for funding. So um, so I think that's uh, it's been working decently well for us so far. The funny thing is, I've been actually spending a bit of time this year to sort of automate this process even more, <laughs> so that um, when a new sponsor come in, they would receive an automated email message, which asked them to fill out some forms and uh, upload their logo. And that would trigger a belt script to send an automated PR to the website, <laughs> uh, nice. which makes the whole thing just uh, automated. I've actually uh, been annoyed by this quite for quite a time because every time like a new sponsor comes in, I have to ask them for the logo. Sometimes I have to like manually like update the site or stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I have to do that exact same thing. <laughs> right. So um, since I've implemented the automated system. Been saving me quite a lot of time. I think the the most important part is to sort of um, you just, it just feels good to be able to stop worrying about these chores uh, and to be able to focus on things that you think matters more. Uh, not saying that sponsors don't matter, right? But um, <laughs> the the grunt work of just like collecting these information, putting it on the website, and like manually updating stuff. It's just um, if these can be automated, we should, uh, then we should, right? Yeah. I mean, we're programmers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny that you mentioned the brands. This is almost like the project itself is the brand, and even though, like in a way, the companies have a bigger brand in general than the project, but because they're the ones trying to be on on our website, like we're the brand. Yeah, I think we are a channel where. Uh, because we have an audience, so the audience uh, becomes potential customers for these companies that are sponsoring us, um, right? You see, like uh, there are some typical types of companies that would sponsor open source projects. They either build developer-facing products, or they offer educational content, or um, or things that typical technical startups would be interested in, right? So, um, yeah, I guess I was wondering that it's like, yeah, what kind of companies are the people on are doing this? Yeah, I, I think mostly uh, any product that a technical company would be interested in, uh, they would be interested in having. And the thing is because, you know, as open source projects, our audience has, is, has a very, very targeted dem- demography. It's like... Mm-hmm. The uh, the sponsors know like if someone visits Vue.js website, they it has to be a developer or someone who's involved in a technical organization, right? So this is sort of a from a marketing perspective, it saves them a lot of headache of like just it's much better than saying buying just Google AdWords, right? And this is kind of specific now, but I've always I had also th- thought about in a way like anyone can put their company logo on there and so have you had to ever think about like saying no basically because um so far not really i guess um so far like all the most of the websites we see most of the sponsors we see are indeed related to a uh, tech audience so as long as it's appropriate for a tech oriented audience i think that would be fine there are a few times where um it's funny enough because um, 
I've uh, I've received some emails, like relatively weird emails, like saying like, "Hey, we want to advertise on your site," and it's like just I don't know. It's maybe they're just scraping websites with high traffic or something,、uh, but I don't. Like I, I see that their product, their company is just just nothing related to technical world at all. Then I would not really re- reply or、uh, be interested in working with them. Yeah, because I've had the same problem where it's like, you know, you don't want to just like take money because they're giving you money. Yeah, definitely.、Right? It's like, yeah, it has to be relevant to some extent. Right, and I, I guess that's the same with、um, if you have a Patreon. I, I was talking about this earlier、mm-hmm. with Michael about how. You know, people have all these tiers, and they're supposed to be like ways for you to like give more. It's like,、mm-hmm. well, I don't really want to do more work just to make more like an extra few dollars or something. Yeah, I think one of the important things I、uh, when I started the Patreon, I have like from day one, I had the intention to make sure that、um, like if you look at other patrons like.、Um, Like video content creators, or、um, yep, yep. They, they typically tie the tiers to what the、uh, what the what the donor gets back. Like if you you donate more, you would get back more、uh, actual stuff that the the creator produces.、Um, whereas for us, the our usage of Patreon is just more like a、um, more like a payment processor, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, Because our tiers are not directly related to how much they get from us, it's it's related to how how much exposure they get on our website, which is a passive resource for us. And I think that's a good thing because、uh, we are able to decouple the amount of sponsorship that we get from uh, the work. Um, not saying that we can just not do any work, but we are able to. Take more control of what we want to work on,、uh, which allows us to focus better on the things that matters for the project instead of for the sponsors. No, I, I completely agree. It's like otherwise you can't scale like what you're able to do because you're t- like if it's like oh I'm going to make an extra video for every person that gives me X dollars, it's like not going to work at、yeah. all. I feel like、uh, to some extent, like we do occasionally, you know, we have. Like some big sponsors, they have small requests, but like nothing、mm-hmm. like we would just implement this feature for you, or we would just merge this PR because you're a sponsor. Like we don't do anything like that.、Uh, most of the time, it's like, oh, we have this thing going on. Would you be kind enough to retweet it for us? And be like, okay, sure.、Um, but、um, other than that, it's it's mostly, you know, sponsor is just a sponsor. It's not a customer where like you have to, like. Answer to their specific needs or anything, right? And maybe if you wanted to go that route, you would just charge a lot more than like whatever this is. Definitely, yeah.、Um, and since you mentioned that Patreon is just a payment processor, at that point, it makes me think that in a way, like just developers in general don't really care about Patreon for what it gives me. Like it's like if 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 someone else made something like this, like say even GitHub,、mm-hmm. which makes a lot more sense. Yep. Like I would just see everyone just switching to that because it, all the developers are already on GitHub. It makes more sense that it would be on there. And Patreon doesn't care about open source developers. It's just one other section, right, for them. One thing's Patreon is、uh, right. It's taking a decent cut out of the out of the money we get. Yeah.、Right? I've actually thought about building something like this myself. Yeah. <laughs>、right? But、uh, 
But ultimately, I mean, Patreon is still creating value because, you know, think about the, For sure. the amount of energy and time I have to spend to build this myself and have to keep maintaining it. Patreon does have a lot of, uh, like utility contained in it because you can, uh, it has sort of serves as a CRM to some extent. Uh, customer mm-hmm. relationship management. Uh, you can refund people if they like, they somehow mess up the, mess up the payment, uh, with just a few clicks of buttons instead of having to wrangle with credit card companies yourself. Right. Uh, so they do provide value. So, uh, in, in that sense, um, not saying that Patreon is not a good platform. Uh, it does serve its purpose, uh, even in, in the open source case. Um, but, you know, if there is something that ties more directly into open source, it would be great. I mean, Open Collective is also pretty great. We, we now have a decent amount of uh, pledges on Open Collective as well, which we use to fund, uh, uh, like Yom's work, like, uh, our, uh, Soda's work. Soda is the, our team member, full-time employee that I mentioned, uh, that works on our CLI. So, uh, most of their income is funded through Open Collective now, which is pretty awesome. Um, and uh, I think Linux Foundation is building something really similar to Open Collective. Yeah, which is like kind of like why, <laughs> but... Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's great to see there are more uh, solutions in this space though, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, this is definitely something that uh, sustainable open source needs uh, if we want to, you know enable more people to take this route. Yeah, I mean, it's always good to see more people trying to provide good solutions in this in this area. Agreed. And I mean, even for our project, Open Collective is exactly how I make my living because Patreon doesn't have a lot for me. And I don't know exactly why that is. And there's a lot of, I could speculate that maybe it was because we made the Open Collective first, stuff like that. Um, but where do you think that these services could improve on, I guess. Is there anything like you you feel like they could do better or you kind of don't really think about it that much? Not really that much, I guess. Oh, one of the things is like, um, I guess they should expose a better API for us to automate a lot of the workflows, like contacting our sponsors, um, uh, collecting information and uh, querying the, cur- the most up-to-date list of sponsors, you know, this kind of API. I, when I was building our, my automated solution for Patreon, I really had a hard time because Patreon's API, to be honest, is pretty bad. <laughs> um, there isn't even a standard way to just download a list of the, the sponsors. I had, to, I had to actually do a pretty hack, pretty hacky way to, to just get all the list. Uh, so, um, yeah, like I just wish like there would be a you know some of these services would just like you know built with developers in mind. You should give them the tools they want to to fully automate their workflow. Makes sense, and it's like more likely that Open Collective would do that than yeah. Patreon. So. Yeah, I mean Open Collective have this uh, automated uh, logo thing, which is pretty smart, right? Like you. Just uh, copy paste a bunch of images with like zero to ten, and they would update the list. I think it went buggy for a while, but I, th- I still think it's a pretty smart idea. Um, whereas for Patreon, I actually have to build this whole thing myself so that I can generate automated pull requests, which took a lot of time. But 
I'm glad it's working now. Yeah, we, we use that for our readme too. I kind of want to move on to talk about like more governance rather than funding. Well, my observation is that open source is pretty organic and that people kind of just step out to just work on stuff that they're interested in. And the way leaders come about isn't because you like told someone you should do this, but like everyone just kind of self-appoints in a way. And so in that sense, it gets kind of hard to do coordination. So I'm just wondering like how the team just like, how, how does, how do you make sure like everyone's on the same page or, I mean, you can't obviously know everything that's going on. So you have to delegate and like, do you have to, like, there's meetings and all that, but like, how do you actually do that if everything's async? Honestly, I don't really have a very structured answer to that. I guess a lot of time it's just improv- <laughs> improvisation. Um, sometimes I would just uh, write a roadmap of what we plan to do, but a lot of cases, uh, one of the things I've I've found is if you when people take step up and to start working on something, and if you encourage them, and you slowly give them more, uh, I guess you give them more privileges, like mm-hmm. give them commit access, give them uh, permission to close issues. They naturally tend to take up more responsibilities um, because they feel they're trusted. Um, so I think, uh, uh, I guess the key is if you trust people, people will, you know, uh, give back with, uh, by, by taking up more responsibilities. Um, because naturally they, they started working on this because they feel like they, they can contribute. And if they feel their contribution is valued, um, they tend to do it more. I don't actually try to push people to do anything. I think. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, if they have ideas, they would directly ping me on our Slack or Discord, and uh, they would try to get some feedback from me, and I would just uh, tell them what I think, uh, mm-hmm. and then we would just let them do it. I guess I could theoretically do a better job sometimes by, you know, if I, I were to, because I don't want to run this run this like a company where like, uh, you you have very detailed plans for everything you want to do, and you kind of assign them and say like, "Hey, this is what you need to do for the next three months or something." Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'm just really glad that we have a lot of team members who are really really self motivated, and they 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 come up with amazing stuff. I'm like, "Wow, this is really cool." Uh, yeah, it, it's really nice. You know, uh, I guess that's the the good part of open source. Um, like Guillaume does so much. Work, like amazing improvements to like he did the CI UI completely uh, just uh, we came I think we just briefly talked about this idea and then like a few weeks later he just came up with this whole thing he's like hey look at this <laughs> you know uh, we also we also had this uh, documentation thing because Chris has been kind of busy with his work. So he's been uh, not doing as active maintenance of the docs for a while. And then Sarah, Sarah Drasner and uh, Fanon, they just, uh, they just like, okay, we're going to take over. Uh, and then Sarah is organizing biweekly meetings to prepare for um, the docs updates for our new RFCs for the upcoming uh, V3 stuff. So uh, all of these are, I didn't really like say we need to do this, but uh, because they feel like 
you know, this is the, the good thing to do for the project. They, they came up with the idea. That is really cool. Um, I guess like if you run a company this way, it probably wouldn't work that well. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the nice thing about, you know, you being an open source project is we don't really have, we're not working for survival. I think that's the key, right? Where we don't mm. have, we don't have a burn rate. We don't have a runway like counting down. Like this is, we have to launch something five months from now or we're dead, you know? So that relieves us from having to always rush for, like, think about like what is the most critical thing and just, we can, we can just sit, stay, take a step back and think about like, this is what would make the user's experience better. This is what just uh, uh, benefits our users, right? It doesn't have to, we don't have to make a lot of these hard trade-offs that companies have to make because they're like, oh, this is nice, but we don't have, you know, we don't have money. Like, or, or like we just, our burn rate just doesn't allow us to do that. No, I really like that point. Obviously, we still have to prioritize. There are a lot of things that we don't necessarily have the bandwidth for. But the, the thing is like, we still have a lot more liberty in determining what we think uh, is is better for the for the user, and we can think about that in a very, you know, we can think about for the long run, for the short run. We don't have to always just like be be scrambling to survive for the next few months. Yeah, it's it's almost. I like your point about it being like basically, you know, nothing is really urgent. Like there, there's no sense. There shouldn't be a sense of that because, yeah. in a way, like what you said, we're all free to do whatever we want. Uh, the 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 you know the problem is that it's all self imposed guilt and like just like the pressures of other people. But in the end, you don't have to do any of that, and you don't have to listen to those people either. And so, how can you like if you want to talk about like game theory? It's like an infinite game. You're like playing to not win. You're just playing to keep. You can keep going forever. And so, it's how do we change that mindset? Because I almost feel like same with the whole VC thing. It's like we want to turn open source into like every other company. Right. And I, uh, I don't think and, that and, it's, you know, some open source companies, maybe they were started to be a company, but not every open source project was started to be a company, right? It could just stay an open source project. And I think that's uh, that's a valid choice. Yeah. And I almost feel like we need to learn to almost like it's like we almost forgot like what are the differentiating parts of open source compared to other ways of doing things and by why are we trying to emulate like how people make money in other like regular companies exactly. or how they are organized we should learn to take advantage of those things and it's going to call for different solutions right let's see okay i guess related to that is how exactly does somebody join the core team is there there's no formal process for that not right? really uh so most of the time you you naturally build your credentials by just stand, step, stepping up and do things. Um, yeah. Like if you are active, you comment on issues, you submit pull requests, you are active on our Discord servers, uh, people will notice, right? Uh, core team will notice. Uh, I think the recent, our most recent uh, New member, uh, yeah, Natalia. Natalia. He, she joined by, um, she's she's just being really active. You know, she's involving a lot of these uh, community stuff. Uh, she's been submitting pull requests here and there. 
And then because of all the, you know, being active in, in all the things, uh, eventually the team members nominated her. Uh, actually, I think Chris nominated her. Uh, he, he, he brought, uh, he brought this up to me saying like, Natalia has been doing a lot of great work recently and, uh, a lot of us think we should, uh, add him. Also, uh, like, uh, Derek, uh, Gusto JS, he pretty much mm-hmm. runs our public Discord server. Uh, he's kind of like engaging in every conversation and all that. And then, uh, I think Linus nominated him saying like, he's been so active in our discord server. I think it's worth, you know, we should uh, just add him to the team. It's some, in some way, it's kind of a form of recognition for the work you've done for the, for the community and for the, for the project. Uh, cause like when you join the team, you don't actually get assigned any formal responsibility. You just keep doing what you've been doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's more like a recognition than anything else. And, and most of the time you just earn respect from existing team members and you become a team member. No, I agree. I, I feel like that's exactly what happened with what I was doing on Babel. And it, it's almost like you, you almost need to like add people before, like sometimes you might want to add people before they feel like they're ready because Adding them will actually convince them like they're good enough to yeah, yeah. to be on the team. Yeah, a lot, and also like when you when you formally you know recognize them as a team member, they would they have a boost of confidence, and they they do what they are they've been doing even better, right? So, um, but like we try to like when we so on our team page, like we try to actually like have a very vague thing called like core focus or like main focus. But it's not like like you are supposed to be working on this and you should only work on this, right? It's, it becomes more like a thing like this is what they are known for before they join the team. And this is what the area they are most active in or have the most knowledge for. And we often have like, so once people join the team, it's very common for them to say like, hey, I also want to work on this. Can you, you know, add me to this, add me to that. So, which is nice because like when people become the team, you start thinking uh, for the future of the project and you just work on whatever you think is best for the project. Yeah, I like that. Like how we, it's like we want to get like people that were interested, like when people are joining for the first time, they have the specific thing they want to do. And when they become more of a maintainer, they start thinking more holistically like, oh, let's think about the project and then they might do a bunch of other things and then figure out that other thing is more interesting. Like, and also, like, uh, they also, I think the team specific for me is a really good resource to fall back on when I'm trying to make some dis- like high level decisions. Cause when it was only me, right? A lot of decisions, uh, don't carry that much weight. So I just do whatever I wanted. But now, you know, we have so many users. We have a huge community. Uh, every decision kind of carries a lot of weight. So it also, me personally, it makes harder and harder for me to just make a decision on my own. So if I want to make a big decision, I have to, like you know, run it to, by the team and just like get people's feedback. Uh, what do you think? What, what do they think? All of the RFCs, right? We actually have an internal round of review before we publish it, um, and all the all of these things, like you know, a lot of these decisions, we have to. The team is really, really valuable in providing feedback and uh, having different perspectives on what we should do and what we should not. I guess on the team page, you also put people that are not as active anymore. And we have this too, where, you know, people that have left. So I guess I wonder, do you have a setup for how do people transition out 
of not working on it anymore. I guess we don't have a, there's nothing formal about that, right? Like we just noticed like, hey, um, this person hasn't been active for quite a while. Uh, and which is totally fine because like, you know, we move on from things, we have things in our lives. So, uh, but we still want to recognize the work they've done in the past. So, um, but at the same time, we also want to make sure like we, we have a list of people who are actually still working on it. So like people don't try to reach out to people who've already stopped working <laughs> on it, which is kind of awkward. So, um, it's just a way to, you know, there's really nothing super formal about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I, we actually like talk to like when we announced like when we decided to ha- like separate the list because like we noticed like a few of us have hasn't been doing anything for for quite a long time. Uh, a lot of uh, I actually personally reached out to them and saying like, "Hey, like mm-hmm. we noticed that you haven't haven't been doing anything for a while. Hope everything is okay. We're moving to this alumnus page," uh, and they they'll be like, "Oh, yeah, thank you." Most people are happy because, like, you know, when you have been involved in something and you're still recognized for all the things you've done in the past, it's, um, I mean, it's just uh, good to keep it in mind, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, you definitely want to recognize contributions. But then also, like, in terms of, I guess I was getting at mm-hmm. more, like, the if you give people commit right, 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 and then they're not working on it, when do you remove them from a security point of view? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, I guess like it's it's probably better if you have like a written down policy, like saying uh, if you don't, you know, if you feel like you don't have t- time to work on it anymore, please let us know. Uh, and. Um, mm-hmm. And if you don't actively work on this for more than a few, maybe a certain amount of months, then uh, mm-hmm. we'll have to remove your commit rights for security reasons. You know, I think if you write these down, people will understand, which is totally fine. Yeah, because I realized when we did this, it's like, oh, I don't even realize how many things that people have access to. And it's like, it's really like... Projects are really good at adding people in, but then remembering that we have to set up like team accounts or passwords or services and making sure like those are all written down and removing like when, you know, when people leave the company, an actual company, you yeah, have to it's, it's a lot of too. logistics like, work. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the hidden part of the work. Another hidden part of the work, right? Like, uh, I have to like manage teams on GitHub, giving people permissions, remembering. Like what tokens people have and stuff like that, which is, uh, but it's ultimately like it's, it's a lot of it is still built on top of trust, right? And I think the nice thing about open source is you work with them long enough. That trust, I think, is 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 a really strong bond, right? When you uh, work on open source together. Yeah, and it's really funny when like you maybe you've never even met them in real life unless yep. you meet them at a conference or something yeah I, I still remember like the first time we most of the team met in the in Poland I think mm-hmm. yeah it's a it's a pretty interesting thing because now that we have a lot more conferences it's almost like a team get together at every conference <laughs> which is really nice actually yeah right it's like we once tried to organize a, a team gathering. Uh, a, a yeah, yeah. It costs a lot of money, right? But but if we have conferences where everybody goes to, 
uh, it's actually a very nice opportunity for everyone to meet offline. So there was a time when you were tweeting that um, someone was complaining that you were working on Vue 3.0, but it was like not online or not open source, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> it's it's funny because I think yeah, people have different definitions of what open source yep. means and like <clears throat> is it the code or the process and the people and like all these things. It's it's interesting. And then you know, it's like, do they actually are they developers or I mean uh, maintainers themselves too? It's yeah. Yeah, I think the original questioning came from actually came from Rob Eisenberg. He's uh, he's the maintainer of Aurelia, which is technically a competitor framework, I guess. I mean, personally, I just feel that you know he obviously think that not being open source from day one is problematic, which I don't really think. Like, I honestly don't understand why he thinks it's problematic. Like, he's um, and, and the thing is, um, the way I tend to develop things is, you know, I don't really go the way of like designing everything perfectly, then just write the code as if it's perfect from day one. I like to start really, really scratchy and just, um, uh, a bit of here and a bit of there and try to tweak things into shape until I feel like this is, the, this is at the stage where it's okay to show it to people uh, and gather feedback, right? Because even now, like, we still have a part of the code base where I'm trying to, you know, untangle and try to make it make more sense out of it. The thing is, if you think about, especially for a project like you, right? Because we have so many users. Um, so we mm-hmm. have to kind of strike a balance between being open about the process versus being able to just um, focus on the things we want to do, right? Obviously, we want to be open with what we're planning to do. That's why we wrote a post on the high-level stuff that we plan to do in V3 last year, um, very, very early on. Like that was that was like when V3 was just like nothing but a, a bunch of ideas and a very, very rough prototype. Um, and then over the fa- past few months, we've published. RFCs on most of the breaking changes or, or major new additions uh, that we want to do. So if you look at our existing RFCs, you'll pretty much have an idea what a Vue 3 will look like by now. I think like the, the reason that we're doing RFCs and having the code in private for now is so that the discussion can be focused on the actual design changes instead of the underlying technical details. Because like even today, we still occasionally receive like pull requests, like you know, having it open and people will submit pull requests on code bases that you're not, which is not even final yet. Even today, we still receive a lot of pull requests. People are just like changing one line of code style, changing how we write a for loop, or just like asking like why you're doing it this way, right? This kind of noise. Uh, if we are open source from day one, people will start doing things like this on thing on code that ourselves are not even sure about, right? Uh, yeah. And it's just a lot of distraction, and also like a lot of these internal things, like especially when we try to when when we're working on the prototype, right? Um, the the RFCs were actually developed in kind of in parallel with the internal prototype, where um, the RFCs are actually based on some of the observations we've discovered while working on 
the prototype. So the prototype kind of serves as a testing bed for some of these ideas. Um, and in order to do that, we have to just try out a bunch of stupid things or just like say, we're not, I'm not sure like how this API should actually be designed. So let's just go with this first, right? And just implement it, see how it works. So when you do that, and if people are just reading the code or following a commits, they'll be like, oh, this is how Vue 3 is going to work. Um, and they'll, they'll write blog posts like, hey, they just pushed a commit. They're going to do this in Vue 3, right? That's going to just create a lot of confusion. So we don't want, we don't really want that to happen. So, uh, we want to make sure like the moment we open, we open source it, there's no room for people to just interpret differently than what we intended to be. Uh, when we, you know, so, so there, that's the reason like we kind of keep the code private for now, but we try to discuss the, uh, the actual changes through RFCs in as much details as possible, right? In every RFC, we goes into a lot of depth in explaining like what's the current problem, like what's the historical issues in how this problem has evolved between view one, view two, and why we're changing the view three, um, which I think is a lot more valuable than just reading a bunch of work in progress code. And we actually spend a lot of work in writing those RFCs. Um, so that's just my take on it. Like, yeah, I, mean, I personally don't feel like, you know, open source literally means the code has to be there from day one, right? No, I, I that kind of that makes sense to me. Like, and in a way, writing the RFCs it can help people focus. It's like caring about the abstraction versus like all these details that we're going to change anyway. And that trade-off is like, you know. It's not like you're intentionally not allowing people to like see it because you don't want them to, but that it'll end up being better in the long run because uh, there's no reason for people to try it if that's not yeah. what you're looking for at the moment. I think like at this stage, like if we open source it at this stage, the the best, like at best, it will just fulfill some people's curiosity, and that's pretty much it. It won't really help that much in terms of discussing like what at the high level the framework should should do, right? Because the code really is just implementation details at this point. And it's going to still, there's still yeah. a lot of things to change before, you know, an actual version of Vue3 is published. I mean, we'll probably open source it um, by the time we think like most of the uh, architecture is relatively stable so that we won't like do huge overhauls anymore. Uh, but I just like, you know, like it, I just don't feel it's, it's at that stage yet. And also like, we don't actually have a set date on when exactly we're going to release it because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we want to make sure like we, we do all, we finish all the things that we wanted to do. Like, like I mentioned before, we're not trying to hit a specific deadline because there is no reason to have a deadline really. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I, it's funny because I see a lot of projects do that. Like React, they did that with hooks in a way, right? Like it wasn't like like they didn't tell everybody they were working on it. They told a few people and yeah. React with their other release, same thing. So it's like it seems like everyone's doing it at the same time. It's funny because uh, it's really funny because uh, I think the uh, two days before they announced it at ReactConf, Dan Abramoff was actually in New York. He was visiting and. Uh, I saw it on Twitter. 
So he was meeting up with uh, Ken Wheeler, uh, Rich Harris, uh, and Jared Palmer. Oh, yeah. And I was like, hey, can I join? And they were like, hell yeah. So, so we actually met up that night. <laughs> and we had, a, we had a drink at, uh, at a bar in New York, and we talked a bunch of open source stuff. But they didn't mention a word to me about hooks. So I didn't really, like, I was right there sitting ne- right next to Dan Abramov. He didn't mention a word to me about hooks until he announced it two days later. I think I was, I was going to go too, but I think I yeah, came back yeah, right? the day after yeah. and I like was talking with him. Um. <laughs> yeah, it was really funny because like two days later, I was watching the talk. I was like, damn, he didn't even tell me. <laughs> Another question I was interested in hearing about was, you know, we we're talking about, I think it's funny. I feel like this conversation, we talk about freedom a lot and like, it's interesting in going back to this. Um, I talked to Michael about this idea, like how, like open source licenses only affect the consumption of open source, like allowing who can use it, but it has nothing to do with production. If nobody ever like asks the question, it it doesn't affect your ability to work on the code because if they're not like making issues or anything, they're just consuming it, then you're still free to work on whatever you want. And that's basically the attention of what like maintainer attention. It's just like how much time you have to spend. And so I thought it was cool that, you know, it's like you spent the time to make something called like ViewPress, right? It's like, it's, I, maybe I think it seemed like to him, it seemed like something kind of out there. I mean, to me, it, I mean, it has the name, it's still related to Vue, like you can do whatever you want. Like what, I guess what inspired you to work on that or feel, feel like you could do that, I suppose. Right. Um, I think ViewPress initially came out of the need for, for something to write our documentation like it's powering most of our sub projects now, uh, except our main site, uh, which is just too much to migrate uh, at that point. But um, a lot of our site was originally powered by Gitbook, uh, and Gitbook. I, it's funny because Gitbook was slowly just moving towards a completely commercial offering, uh, and they're paying less and less attention to the open source part of it. Or it's still open source, but it's just like the documentation. Like you, you notice like a lot of the documentation are redirecting to the commercial side of it. Yeah. And also like the, the, the generations that like when you run Gitbook, uh, the hot reload is really, really slow, especially when you have multiple translations in the same project. Like we have to wait like six to seven seconds on each reload, which is not. Really not feasible anymore. So, uh, and then there was uh, other inspirations like Gatsby, which is really cool, but was kind of a bit of, I guess, heavier, and also it's not really tailored for documentation. And then I was looking at Gatsby, and also Nuxt also kind of can do static generation, right? But both Nuxt and Gatsby are kind of geared towards websites or apps, uh, and I just want something that's like. Super, super focused on allowing you to just write Markdown and just turn the Markdown into a bunch of static files. I didn't even, I think ViewPress is one of those projects that I didn't even have a clear idea of what it would actually turn into. I just like had this idea and started playing around with it. It's just a bunch of script files and say, and then I realized, okay, this thing kind of works. I guess it's the similar process <laughs> to when I first started playing with Vue itself, right? It's just like a, just an idea. 
then I started playing with it. And then like, hey, this actually kind of works, has potential. Yeah, it kind of sort of distracted me because like I was working on CLI 3 back then. Mm -hmm. Then I started writing the documentation for CLI 3. And then I was like, okay, maybe I can just play around with this idea, just quickly turn a bunch of markdown into into a into a bunch of static files and i i ended up spending a whole month working on vpress instead <laughs> yeah and uh it was also kind of a good switch of pace because i've been working on the cli for such a long time uh, and just working on a completely greenfield project feels really good it's also you know the reason it kind of seems out there is because i didn't want it to be so strictly tied to the framework. It's just sort of an extension. Also kind of like a hobby project almost, right? Like, because I really miss the day when um, when everything, like for a long time, everything I do is just officially the view official stuff, right? And working on ViewPress was kind of that rare experience. Like I'm kind of like positioning myself as just a random community member who wants to build a cool thing. Uh, and, and that feeling yeah. is, I haven't, I haven't really had that experience for a long time. So it was really a good, uh, good switch of gears, I guess. Yeah. I think that's like really important because I, I feel like what you were just saying, like you have this vision and you're going for it, but then like you kind of maybe you feel burnt out or you just feel like it's not that exciting. And then you almost don't allow yourself the freedom to be able to try out new ideas. And and a lot of these new ideas can turn into amazing work, but like you, you need, it's like you're scared of it because you think like, oh, what if people think X, Y, Z about this? And uh, it's funny because like even the other thing you made with the, the open source, like Mint, right? That was kind of random too. And yeah, that was like cool. these are the things that I, um, I think I enjoyed most when I first started playing with uh, open source stuff. When I first had my GitHub account, like what I enjoy most is just like come up with these super random ideas and then just, uh, push a new repository. Didn't really even care if people would notice it or not. It just feels really fun. It's almost like a hobby, right? I just I just came up with a new funny idea and I wrote uh, I wrote all the code for it. Um, it's almost like people who, you know, build stuff at home, build like really delicate models, like mm-hmm. robots or stuff like that. You know, it's um, this process of just creating these things is really enjoyable. And I think I occasionally really want, like I try to constantly remind myself, like this is really important to keep this thing alive so that um, it's also a really good way to sort of, um, I guess just relax. Cause like when you are working on something that has no history burden, there's no obligation or anything, you're much more free to just like let your, let your creativity lead to whatever you want where it wants to go. Uh, instead of working on view today, there's always a lot of constraints, a lot of trade-offs, a lot of things to keep in mind. Every move you take is just carries a lot of weight compared to when you are working on a side project. It's just a lot of, you know, a lot, it's almost like a relief to be able to just work on a side project. Yeah, like there's no like mental load of, all these different trade-offs and all that stuff. Um, I guess that makes me wonder, like, how do you like schedule your days? Is it 
do you are you t- tend to be someone that like organizes everything out like plan it out or you just kind of have a lot of downtime and then like i'm focusing on this specific task because I, I find for me like i like, people are like oh what's your day look like and i'm like every day is very different i don't really schedule anything anymore yeah i try to give myself a high level high level plan kind of like i want to finish this like in these two months or something like that but to be honest, I rarely ever strictly follow it through because, I mean, making plans is always hard. And, you know, there occasionally there will be distractions like view press, which, like, I did not <laughs> have it in plan, but I ended up just spending a whole month working on it. But at the same time, I guess, like, uh, have a high-level high plan, but stay flexible. And as long as I know everything I'm doing is, you know aligned towards the high-level goal of making Vue better, uh, I think that's fine. And the best part about working for myself is I have the power to, to make those adjustments, right? I can, I can pretty much make adjustments anytime I want. So yeah, I guess like ultimately, like the Vue 3 process is probably a bit more organized, but I intentionally give myself a bit more bumper time and don't really want to set a specific deadline because I feel that um, like having a specific deadline isn't really going to help with the ultimate outcome. You know, there's also a lot of family stuff going on, which um, the, another part of working for myself is uh, I get to spend a lot more time with family. Like, cause I, I was, I'm, I'm in China right now and I've been talking to some of the friends and uh, that have full-time jobs at some of the companies in China. And I just noticed that if I actually live a nine-to-five job, I would actually be spending way less time with my kids compared to now. Mm-hmm. So kind of really appreciate you know, what I'm doing uh, that kind of allows me to, to be able to have this sort of flexible schedule. Yeah, I feel like even with just... I mean, it doesn't have to be open source, but I guess, yeah, not doing the nine to five. It's like you should be able to feel like you can work less, right? Because like you're saying earlier, our work input isn't necessarily tied to the output. And so you can be flexible. And there are days where you don't have, you, I mean, you don't like before I was like every second I have to feel like I have to work, right? And and then you have to figure out how to set boundaries and stuff. Um and it's like, I still struggle with that, but um, I don't know. Do you feel like you've been able to have like healthy boundaries in like terms of work and life balance? Kind yeah, of thing? I, I definitely think um, I've improved a lot since I started doing it full time. I think in the early days, I had this problem where like there's just no clear line between work life when you work from home. But later on, <laughs> the funny thing is because I, since I had kids, everything has been, I've pretty much been forced into a very regular schedule because uh, my wife is very methodical when, when she takes care of the kids <laughs> and um, like my she has a really strict sleeping schedule for for a baby and uh, and in order to follow through that I have to wake up and go to sleep at very strict times as well <laughs> and which forced me to have <laughs> yeah. also a very like solid schedule for work so yeah, it's funny because like ever since I had kids, I've been living a very, very scheduled life. It's really funny because um, Michael 
like on the previous podcast, he said the exact same thing <laughs> that helps them with time management. Yeah, like for example, now, like, because I'm taking my son to a kindergarten every morning in China right now. So I, I go to work right after that. And I have to wake up at like at seven every morning, which is just hard to imagine when I was single, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I guess my other question is like, do you feel like being a maintainer helped you or made it worse to prepare you for being a father? <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. Like, cause I don't really have enough to compare because I, I actually went full-time open source when my son was born. So all the time that I've had kids, I've already been working for myself. But thinking back, I think it's uh, it probably, honestly, I don't know. But I think one thing I know for sure is um, having kids definitely sort of pushed myself to be more, uh, gave me more motivation to work on this whole thing, right? I feel like um, there's having kids is a lot more responsibility than before. And when I was just myself without kids, I feel like sometimes I would think like, oh, I, w- I would just work on this thing as a hobby. I would just go do other things. Uh, and probably I would treat this less like a job or anything. But now it's like, mm-hmm. you know, gives me more reasons to to make sure that view is doing well, it's going good, um, you know, because uh, this is how I, you know, provide for the family. That makes me wonder, are there other things outside of tech that inspires you? And I know that you have a background in like art and art history. So it's like, do you, do you still like, are you still into that and researching? Yeah, that? Uh, a lot less. So when I was um, when I was in college, I studied art history, and in my grad school, I actually studied uh, a program called design technology, where it's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of intersection between uh, art and technology. So there's a lot of new media art, for example, using code to to generate generative art, using code to generate live video, audio, detecting human positions, like. AR, VR, we play with that back in school. Um, so all of these things we pretty much all touched upon, even physical computing, like uh, controlling physical stuff with Arduino. Um, a lot of these are super fun to play with, but now I, I'm still like super curious about these. Occasionally follow some of the exhibitions, but honestly don't really have time to do it myself anymore. Um, yeah. But but I had a I had a college uh, graduate uh, classmate, so he was my classmate at Parsons, and uh, he's also from China, and now he's running he's actually doing a uh, startup in China all about creative arts, uh, like digital arts education and stuff, which is really cool. You know, if I wasn't doing open source full time, I would probably do something like that. <laughs> the do you see yourself doing this for a really long time? Yeah, I mean, um, this seems to be good, doing pretty well. So for as long as I can envision, uh, as long as web technologies still holds an important piece in how people interact with technology, I think there's going to be room uh, for view. <clears throat> and ultimately, I also think like, you know, if you we look at really long term, 
Uh, fundamentally, I think Vue is just, if we take it out of the context of the web, it's just a, a set of ways for people to build interfaces, right? So even if one day the web is no longer a thing or view is no longer a thing, I, I think as long as there, there's a need for people to build user experiences, to build user interfaces, I'm probably going to be working on something related to that space. In that space, okay. Awesome. Uh, I guess last question is, or what would you do, do differently when deciding to like do this full time? And do you recommend people try? Um, what would I do differently? Uh, honestly, I don't know. Like so far, everything just—I uh, would say most of the things that happened since I went full time went better than expectation. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so what I would do differently if I knew things earlier, I would just you know switch to TypeScript earlier. <laughs> I guess. Um, mm-hmm. uh, other than that, not much. Oh, I guess even like logistically, like dealing with like. Taxes, ah, health insurance, and like all that. that yeah, stuff. I had a pretty. I would switch to an, a cheaper plan earlier because I was on Cobra for eighteen months. Yeah, right? I, me too. Turns out it was much more. Ex- <laughs> it was actually much more expensive than if I went with a market plan earlier. <laughs> so right. that was something I could have avoided. Um, and then maybe research taxes earlier is. Um, I guess, like, because of the first two years, my income uh-huh. wasn't really that high. I didn't really have to worry about it too much. Um, and now, like, I guess, like, it, it's just the it's a lesson of life. Like, you, when you realize, oh, like, you're hitting a certain bracket, and there are certain ways to help you. Just like, you know, especially when you work for yourself, you know, you can still put money into IRA. You can. You know, have a self-employment IRA if you want to put more tax-deferred dollars into it. Kind of learn it the hard way. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, these are really specific stuff, right? Because, like, I realized, like, I was paying, like, much more tax when I was above a certain threshold. But if I put some dollar into the self-employed IRA, I could just... Uh, Pay much more, much less for that year, and these money I could still, you know, mm-hmm. it's tax deferred. I could invest it and all that. But I mean, you kind of have to learn it the hard way. Otherwise, I just don't know. Like, what, because if you don't actually run into the situation, there's nothing would actually trigger you to say, "I actually need to know about this." Uh, right. I, I I feel the same way. It's like. There, there's not really much advice other than like when you finally have the the faith to just try it because I mean all this stuff like you you'll you'll just figure it out eventually and you don't have to Im- immediately do any of it right like all that stuff is kind of just like saving. I mean, you. don't worry about too much, I guess, like because it's it's like glasses, right? You know, you need it when you when you need it. Because <laughs> honestly, like when I first went full time, somebody actually told me about this, th- like a lot of these stuff. But I was completely confused. Yeah. I'm like, why do I need this? Like, kind of understand it, but I honestly don't feel like it's urgent or like it- it's anything that I I would want to spend time on at that point, right? So I just kind of let it slip through. But later on, 
when it actually did could help me, I just naturally started to research about it. Yeah, I feel like that's just like open source in general. You, you kind of go into it kind of accidentally, but you have this little bit of like vision for what you want to do and just stuff falls into place, which isn't the best. It doesn't feel that great, but it's how it seems to work out. It, it's always risky if you choose a path that you have no like there's not a large amount of references that you can sort of coordinate yourself, compare yourself against, right? You all, you would obviously feel much safer if there are a lot of people doing similar things that you can sort of learn from. I think that one of the good resources is indie hackers. Uh, although a lot of these indie hackers um, case studies are more about building indie products, uh, sort of, or... Some of them are actually like sort of bootstrapped as startups, but still, it, it, there's a lot of good resource. Like the mindset is kind of similar when you first start out. You have to sort of, in order to make a living, you still have to sort of first start think to think in a uh, more. Uh, you, you're essentially a bootstrap entrepreneur, right? Um, so you, you still have to like learn a bit about the business perspective, perspective things like how to, how to properly market stuff, how to actually generate a sustainable revenue stream. Um, but, but I kind of, I kind of learned it along, along the way, right? Like I didn't, in that sense, I feel that, um, I guess I more or less naturally had a product mindset because when I was building Vue, uh, I position it at, at the same time as a, it's almost like in order to, to run view like it is today, where it's more like a pure open source project, uh, I had to start with, by thinking about it as a product in some way. Um, but my ultimate goal is not really to, to turn it into a product, which is kind of funny, but this, this is what allowed me to get to where I am today. So. It's still necessary. Like, if anyone wants to go this route, they still have to sort of uh, learn about the, the basics of all that. Which and and I think indie hackers is a really good resource for that. Awesome. I think that's a, a good place to stop. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, maintainersanonymous.com, for show notes and transcripts. If you have any feedback, ideas, or guest suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter at left underscore pat. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash henryzoo.